Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And today we're going to be finding out what we can learn about resilience from people who live with an altered appearance or visible difference. And we're going to be joined by very dear friend of Carr, James Partridge, OBE, and final year Carr PhD student, Matthew Ridley. Excellent. And before we get going, just a quick note to say thank you so much for all the lovely feedback that we've been getting recently. We really appreciate it. And we'd love to keep hearing from you. So please tweet at us or at car underscore UWE or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're only a little pod, so ratings and reviews make a really big difference. Yeah, for real. Anyway, let's get on with the episode. Resilience, broadly defined as an ability to bounce back from adversity or difficult experiences such as trauma, health problems or stress, has become a bit of a buzzword in recent years. Right, it seems like we all need a dose of it, from kids in schools, to leaders in business, to businesses themselves. There's even a website in The Guardian dedicated to resilient cities. Interesting. Remind me to actually look that up. The need for resilience also seems increasingly relevant given social and political change and uncertainty. Brexit definitely springs to mind for us here in the UK. Mm. We need to adapt to these changes and basically, in other words, just get on with it. Being able to recover from setbacks, adapt well to change and succeed in the face of adversity is one way we can define resilience. But having a quick look in the literature and speaking to our resident resilience expert Matt in the PhD office, it appears that defining resilience is somewhat of a minefield and there doesn't seem to be a consensus on what exactly resilience is. Hmm, okay, so I'll start with the old-fashioned way with the dictionary definition. According to Oxford English Dictionary, resilience, as the word applies to people, groups or organisations, is defined as the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. I actually found that out via a very quick Google of what is resilience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I think that's a useful broad definition. But we checked in with Matt and he told us his preferred definition is from the Resilience and Healthy Ageing Network, which defines resilience as, and bear with me whilst I read this, resilience as the process of negotiating, managing and adapting to significant sources of stress and trauma. Assets and resources within the individual, their life and their environment facilitate this capacity for adaption and bouncing back in the face of adversity. Hmm, interesting. I can see the overlap. But it also makes the point that resilience is more than coping with adversity. It's about the personal growth that can actually come as a result. I think this also raises the interesting question of whether it's a trait and therefore fixed, or something which is far more fluid, like the tide coming and going over time. Yeah, so before preparing for this and speaking with Matt, the area of resilience I'd most familiar with was one that's really taken off in the field of education, the concept of grit, coined by US psychologist Angela Duckworth in her book Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Right, her basic premises is that the prime indicator of achievement isn't how intelligent you are or your talents, but the possession of grit, and that's the ability to dig in and keep going despite the headwinds. Let's actually play a quick clip from Angela Duckworth's TED Talk where she defines grit. Grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. Grit is sticking with your future, day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years, and working really hard to make that future a reality. 
Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. A few years ago, I started studying grit in the Chicago public schools. I asked thousands of high school juniors to take grit questionnaires, and then waited around more than a year to see who would graduate. Turns out that grittier kids were significantly more likely to graduate, even when I matched them on every characteristic I could measure, things like family income, standardized achievement test scores, even how safe kids felt when they were at school. So it's not just at West Point or the National Spelling Bee that grit matters; it's also in school, especially for kids at risk for dropping out. To me, the most shocking thing about grit is how little we know, how little science knows about building it. Every day, parents and teachers ask me, "How do I build grit in kids? What do I do to teach kids a solid work ethic? How do I keep them motivated for the long run?" The honest answer is. I don't know. <laughs> What I do know is that talent doesn't make you gritty. Our data show very clearly that there are many talented individuals who simply do not follow through on their commitments. In fact, in our data, grit is usually unrelated or even inversely related to measures of talent. And not to sound like a broken record, but while this definition is definitely relevant, critics argue that it's merely one aspect of resilience. Like I can think of times where grit alone has definitely not worked. Anyway, we've linked to the TED talk in our show notes. It's less than six minutes, so have a quick listen if you want to check it out. Yeah, and I think sometimes where I get stuck on、um, the idea of teaching or fostering grit to kids in schools, especially those from socially disadvantaged backgrounds, is that we need to remember that grit isn't a replacement for structural policies or actions that might help to alleviate some of the adversity in the first place. I mean, don't get me wrong; I'm absolutely for fostering resilience in kids, but I think it's important to acknowledge that a child's capacity for resilience or grit is limited if they're hungry, for example.、Hmm, oh my God, yes! And then it can come to just one other thing that they get judged against. Like, come on, you need to be more resilient. The same way they just get judged that they need to be better for maths or whatever. Yeah, I completely agree to this. So I think, yeah, it can be very useful, but not as a tool to judge others against either. Absolutely, I think that's enough of defining what resilience is. Let's、um, get onto our guests, James and Matt, and find out more about how resilience relates to living with a visible difference. James Partridge OBE is the founder and former chief executive of Changing Faces, and is a key figure in the history of the Centre for Appearance Research, which James set up alongside our former co-director Nikki Rumsey OBE in 1998. Only a few years after I was born, actually. <laughs>、um, uh, when he was 18, James was severely burned in a car fire that changed his face and his life forever. After a period of recovery and intensive care, he spent a grueling gap year in hospital, having reconstructive surgery for 40% burns to his face and body, before going up to Oxford as planned, where he graduated in politics, philosophy, and economics in 1975. He embarked on a master's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, which led to academic appointments in health economics at St Thomas Hospital and at Guy's Hospital in London. In 1979, he exchanged academia for dairy farming and a teaching post in A-level economics in Guernsey. While working on the farm in 1990, James wrote and published his book *Changing Faces: The Challenge of Facial Disfigurement*. This was met with such a warm response that James relinquished his life as a dairy farmer to found the charity Changing Faces in 1992 to pass on the lessons he learned and to work for the rights and inclusion of people with facial and body disfigurements. 
As well as directing Change in Faces, James has served on many committees and panels bringing disability, human rights, user, consumer and lay perspectives to bear on a range of subjects. And excitingly for us, James is one of our keynote speakers for our Appearance Matters 8 conference this June. Very exciting. And we're also joined by Matt Ridley, our resident northerner in the PhD office, and he is in his third and final year of his PhD. Also, Matt will be presenting his research at the conference too. Hi, James. Thanks for joining us on Appearance Matters podcast. As you know, we're talking about resilience as it relates to people who have a visible difference. So can we start off by you telling me what resilience means to you and your experiences? Well, it's a subject of huge interest to me, and I'm sure to many, and I'm delighted that that this kind of positive aspect of disfigurement in its broadest sense is being studied. I guess I should start with a bit of personal stuff, because mm-hmm. that's really where you know my understanding comes in. I don't think anybody in any of the conversations I had in my treatments from 1970 to 1976 mentioned the word resilient at any time. I don't think it was a concept that was in circulation and certainly wasn't something that I was encouraged to uh, draw upon. And I'm not sure that I would have known what to do had somebody said, draw upon your resilience, because I think it's it's quite a hard thing to know you have until you have something thrown at you in the form of an adversity or some mega mega event. In my terms, I had 18 years of relatively adversity-free life. And I say relatively, mm-hmm. I'll come back to that in a minute. But I don't think that I would have said to myself, age 17 and three quarters or 18 gosh, I'm a resilient person. I don't think I was, I would be able to assess my kind of degree of resilience. And so I think my first thought is, I'm not sure that people know how much or how resilient they are until something happens. Mm -hmm. It gets very hard to figure out what it is that I would have to have in order to be resilient. But I think there are some concepts that I do think I had on reflection and probably at the time which were helpful to me. And I might just try to highlight two or three of those. Mm-hmm. One was that I think I had developed what I would call a degree of self-reliance. And that is an interesting concept because I think, it, and I acquired it primarily because I was sent to boarding school at eight, at eight years old. Mm-hmm on your own, cold dormitories, you know, wait a second, hold on, I'm not sure I want this. And I think that experience, and that went on for 10 years, that did give me something, give, I'm not sure if give is the right word, it promoted in me an ability to handle or cope with a whole raft of different pressures, emotions, behaviours by other people. Self-reliance is one of those strengths that I think is part of resilience. The second thought is that in me, I think a degree of family support around me at the time of my accident and the burns and Mm -hmm. so on, that was extremely particular to that specific age. 
let me take you back to the early 70s. So my parents had been thoroughly adult and affected by the Second War. They had lived through it. Mm -hmm. They had seen people lost and injured. And I think they had a, some would say, Dunkirk spirit. I wouldn't say that that's what they had. I think they had learned strength to get through some very tough, nasty stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that that they conveyed that to me invisibly, implicitly, over particularly the first six months of my treatments. So that I was surrounded by people who, who were kind of knowing that you can get through this stuff. Yeah. I didn't know that, but they kind of knew it and they conveyed that to me, which is important. And the third thing which might be strange is I think the experience that I had in a burns unit was a very long-term experience. In the 1970s, if you were treated for 40% burns, you spent weeks and weeks in a burns ward, and you got to know a group of people and nurses and patients and families who came, and it was a cocoon, and people would come back for further treatments and plastic surgery, but there was a real warmth, a sense of shared experience there. Right. And... I think those three factors were very important in my first year after my accident. And I suspect what happened after that helped to grow whatever resilience I developed mm -hmm. then. Um, and in particular, the support of a wider group of not just family, but friends and particularly new friends. So yeah. the social support around me grew as I started to rehabilitate myself. Those three things are what I would say was really, really important to me. Yeah, that's brilliant. And thank you for sharing all of that. That all makes a lot of sense to me listening to it. So, James, I know you're coming um, and you are one of our keynote speakers at our Appearance Matters 8 conference this June. Can you say a little bit about what you're going to be talking about? Well, I'm, I've been asked, hmm, I've been invited, it's very pleasant. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to reflect on 25 years since setting up Changing Faces, mm -hmm. and in particular to try to look at what's changed, what has changed for the good, and what maybe hasn't changed for the good, what are the challenges, and really the opportunities in the future, both on sort of helping people, changing lives, but also changing the minds of those who people with disfigurements come across. So it's going to be fairly broad. Mm. Actually, in particular to relating to resilience, I, I think there is a real issue about how health services are providing services, psychosocial services, because so much of healthcare policy relies on there being, quote, good evidence scientific evidence mm. on which to base new innovation. And the field of psychology has not done very well across the board at delivering randomised controlled trial level evidence, except in terms of CBT uh, for sort of general moderate anxiety and depression. So I am going to say a few things about that, mm. because I think that there is a real need for psychologists as a whole to figure out how it is that they're going to influence healthcare policy, because otherwise it's just going to be down to 
Oh, well, go and see a support group and, and, and healthcare itself, which I think should encompass psychosocial intervention, will remain by and large biomedical in its focus and its concentration. Great. Really look forward to that. I'm sure we all are. Yeah. Um, I'm going to hand over yeah. to Jade. Thanks. Great. Can't wait either. And um, now on to you, Matt. So we have a couple of questions for you. Thanks for joining us as well. No um, so your PhD is looking at resilience in people with cleft lip and or palate. And why is this an important area of research then? Okay, yeah, well, for a number of reasons, really. Firstly, that predominantly the existing research that's, that's out there at the minute um, focuses on what's wrong with individuals with cleft lip and palate. So from that medical deficit approach model. Mm-hmm. And while admittedly and understandably that is crucial, it's only half the picture because for us to be able to develop interventions that might promote positive outcomes, we need to know more about the strengths and, and how we actually get people to a place where they can live a happy, fulfilling, successful life. So that's, that's the first bit. Also, there's, there's a very saying that predominantly the research focuses on what's wrong with people with cleft. There is a very small amount of research gathering that discusses and describes a resilient subgroup of individuals with cleft lip and or palate and you know, talks about them having these happy, fulfilling, successful lives. So we know they exist, we know people are out there, but we don't know a lot about the detail and the specifics in terms of the characteristics of resilience, and that is actually the sort of overriding aim of my PhD. Um, and where I'm at at the minute, it's firing a framework of characteristics for resilience for people affected by cleft lip and or palate. Great. So that's kind of your overall aim. Are there any kind of key research questions around that that you're focusing on in particular? So that's the main one. It's getting a framework yeah. and, and that's that's what I've achieved so far. Mm. Another one on top of that, which is ongoing, I'm looking now at measuring resilience. Now I've got a framework, whether or not resilience differs between a group of adolescents with cleft versus a group without cleft. And that's that's pending some interesting stuff. So that that's really mapped onto the framework that has emerged from the interviews, which go on to talk about in a little while if, if you want me to. Great yeah I know that's really interesting research and um, I know you've used some novel research methods as well so can you tell us a little bit more about how you've approached studying resilience and what methods you've used? Yeah sure so um, yeah so you give a nice um, summary in the introduction about you know talking about the problems with the definition of resilience in that there's, there's a multitude of definitions available and so the challenges of measurement are intricately tied up with that problem because the fact that there's so many definitions mean there's so many measures as well. Yeah, of course. And actually one of the so one of the, the, the papers that I talk about that discusses the resilient subgroup actually mentions this notion that individuals with cleft lip and or palate generally find ways of living with their difference and succeed based on the measures they themselves construct. Mm-hmm. So they talk about, you know, the people with cleft who seemingly are living normal, happy, satisfying, fulfilling lives are those that have self identified being about self-aware awareness of themselves in terms of what they want to achieve in life and that's how they then are able to live that life that they're living with that being said and going back to the the problems with measurement the the method that i've um, adopted and the approach i've adopted i've used a narrative methodology so i've done that with adults with cleft lip and or palate so essentially what i've done is i've asked them adults about their experiences and about them to talk about Essentially, what you're getting is their own version of their own resilience. Um, so in line with you know one of the few findings on positive strength approach to, to this population, I think that's really key. And arguably, it's it's most important way of gauging whether somebody is happy and satisfied with their life. It's to ask them. 
So that's what I've done. So the narrative approach, I'll give you a brief summary because I could go on for a while about this. Yeah, so basically, the um, and f- for you, James, I don't know if you know about the sort of narrative method approach. So the underlying premise is that we all tell stories to help us make sense of life. We do it on a day-to-day basis. We do it with people we know, with people we don't know. We do it with people on a bus, on a train. And that's what this method is essentially acquiring and you're getting their own version of their own resilience in that way. Just to add to this as well, one of the reasons I've also adopted this approach was the fact that up until 2000, cleft care in the UK wasn't centralised. So around 2000, 2001, cleft care became more centralised and psychologists were included in the cleft teams. And so the fact that I've started with interviewing adults was it was purposeful because I want to look at the long-term outcomes, thinking of positive outcomes, looking at where they are currently. But also the fact that some of these adults I've interviewed probably won't have had the psychological support when they were getting the care when they probably most needed it, you know, during adolescence when they were younger. So I interviewed adults ranging between the age of 21 and 63 years old. So, you know, the 21-year-olds, the, the younger ones in that group are likely to have accessed psychological support. However, the, the older adults one of and that was an interesting take so this might have been for some of them their first perhaps even the first chance to tell their story and and yeah that all together was the reason I've adopted that approach yeah it's a really novel approach to research so has there anything that's kind of surprised you about your findings so far I don't know surprised I'd probably say like happy about one of the findings so yeah um, I've obviously analysed the, the interviews and it's come up with seven main themes. So James, I'd love to tell you about them all in detail. Maybe we can at some point, but maybe not on this recording because I could <laughs> go on for hours. But I'll try and just hone in on a few of them. So generally, the people who I interviewed and probably understandably so when I made the call for participants was people who generally are probably doing quite well. And, and that's fine because equally, as I've said, I was mainly interested in the characteristics of a resilient individual as opposed to maybe somebody who's struggling to adapt um, and adjust psychologically. Yeah, and overall, so that being said, generally the adults frame the narratives with uh, predominantly a, an optimistic outlook. But also within that, they, you know, it was fits and starts because there was moments where they talked about struggling at this particular moment, for example, uh, often it was adolescence. So predominantly the adults cited adolescence as a particularly difficult low point period. But yeah, going back to anything that surprised you in the findings, one of the themes, which is paraphrased from a quote, so my experiences, this is the name of the, the theme, my experiences have made me more understanding of others. Mm. So mm. going back to your introduction about the multitude of definitions available for resilience, there's a lot of them and, and a lot of them, what they have in common is talking about resilience being this coping with the adversity. You know, if you look in the Oxford Dictionary, it's bouncing back. It's dealing with the adversity and, you know, a significant amount of adversity. However, some other definitions talk about it being more than just the dealing with the adversity. It's the personal growth that results from getting through that period of adversity. And this theme essentially is is suggesting that some of these adults with cleft lip and palate, through their own difficult, challenging experiences, have somehow been able to flip it round and show a real level of empathy, a desire to give back based on their experiences. So long story short, what this has led me to do in the current study, the quantitative study, is to is to measure compassion. So I'm wondering, for example, whether compassion might be particularly high in a group of individuals with cleft. Um, and obviously, as I said, I'm going to compare that 
with a group of individuals without cleft. Yeah, so not necessarily surprising, but a nice finding and one that requires further work to cement it in, in terms of evidence base. And as I say, that's ongoing with the current study. Mm, great theme title. I really like that one. Um, so what has study on resilience in this group taught you about resilience then? Is there anything you've learned? Yeah, loads of things. So you, <laughs> what you, haven't you learned? <laughs> um, so yeah, you touched upon again going back to the intro. Um, you touched upon one of the big debates in the literature: the nature of resilience in terms of as far as whether it's something that's more of a trait, it's something that's fixed, it's something that we either have or we don't, or alternatively, whether it's something that is more dynamic and it's something that you actually can can learn, can acquire, and can develop. And based on my research so far, it seems that it's in this population at least, it's something that's more dynamic because from one narrative account to the next within one person's account, they described periods of a lack of resilience and then equally periods of resilience. Also, the sort of sheer multifaceted, multifactorial nature of resilience that James touched upon them three sort of key factors from based on his experiences, you know, self-reliance, social support and sort of described this um, going through shared experiences with other people when you were in you know, the Burns unit for so long. And equally, I've found that in that now I've got this framework, which is multifactorial, which touches upon similar things, funnily enough, James, that you mentioned, so self-reliance. I've got things like optimism, social support, self-compassion, which is a which is very psychological construct, which basically, James, if you, if you haven't heard of that one, it's basically being kind to yourself when faced with, you know, failings and negative events. And I think that intuitively it makes sense because if we can't forgive ourselves, we can't move on beyond that if i can if i can just come in i think there's so much there matt that's of interest um i think a particular point that you've i'd like to pick up on is yeah, your sure. observation about bouncing back or some sense of coping with adversity and springing back to some sort of pre-existing level i i, I don't see it like that at all mm. i i think it is much more about going through the ups and downs and some downs are where you learn the most and your your mm. resilience has collapsed but actually out of that comes some new insight or some new strength or somebody says something significant so i i certainly think that i'm very much in favor of the coping with adversity as a process. The other thing I wanted to comment on was just this notion that personal growth is uh, linked to compassion. I do think that's an interesting thing to test through. I'm not sure that I would entirely share that. I think there is something about measuring yourself against your possible likely other self, as it were. In my case, I had you know a previous existence. And so I was constantly comparing myself today, as it were, with where I thought I would be, you know, had I not had the accident. Right. And yeah. being kind to myself was absolutely essential. You know, expectations that I had previously were completely unattainable now. Mm. Completely unattainable. And, and actually, it was, most of that was also dealing with my parents and my support system's expectations of me. And mm. I think the growth came from, as you say, being kind to yourself, trying to position yourself in comparison with others. Am I really that badly off compared to A, B, or C? Mm -hmm. uh, that helped, so uh, some sort of comparative process. But I think 
the post-trauma growth work is very, very interesting because it, mm. it sort of pitches on these kind of factors that you've been picking up, you know, resilient, reliance, self-reliance and social support and cocoon solidarity. I think from that comes the possibility that you're going to grow through it. Hopefully you will, but it's not by any means an automatic. No. We often at Chaining Faces found that we were receiving the people that didn't get the psychological support around cleft lip and palate, I'm afraid, because it wasn't there. Mm. Um, and it's hard to ask. The other point about healthcare, which we should reflect on when you come to think how to shape personal healthcare, you know, healthcare in the future, mm. is that not everybody wants to go back to their surgical team disappointing they're very grateful thank you very much you've done brilliantly look at my cleft or whatever it is and to go back and say actually i'm unhappy is really difficult so often people will say i'm fine doctor no problem when they're asked in clinic but asked later on or by somebody else well, no i'm not really doing very well actually and that's the nugget of the multidisciplinary team where you know the surgeon might get i'm fine but the the nurse counselor or whoever it is will get something else. Mm. Yeah, no. Go on. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I think, yeah, touching on where you talk about, you agree with the coping with adversity and like you rightly say, it's about how you are able to then engage in that growth. Like that doesn't just happen and you're absolutely right there. And I think you've, what you've touched on from your own experiences and is obviously a key difference probably between, you know, like an acquired injury like um, an experience that you've had and then the cleft lip and palate where it's congenital yeah i'll touch on one of the other themes um which again is a paraphrase from one of the adults and what they said and it's called everybody is different so nobody is different and that's basically around outlook and it's around more specifically levels of optimism and generally all of the adults that i interviewed they all at least to some extent frame the narrative with some level of optimism but this did differ. It differed from one individual to the next. And I think one of the sort of mainstays across the board was it seemed to be around acceptance. So where you talked about sort of comparing yourself, your current self after the, after the accident to past self. And I think for potentially for individuals with a congenital condition, it's almost like, that, well, they've always had this, this condition. So they're not in the same way comparing current and past selves but I think they're obviously comparing themselves with others in society and what seemed to be really strong in these individuals that came across as quote resilient individuals was that they were very accepting of their difference um, and this and that theme name is is what came across everybody is different so nobody is different so I might be different but I, I um just uh, yeah I, I completely share that position and particularly if you think back to well if you think forward to the stigma that's attached to disfigurement uh, and I think if you read the the stigma literature one of the greatest um, sentences in Goffman's work is around acceptance the acceptance of the position that you are in and how you need somehow as a stigmatized person to go beyond just acceptance to full regard and respect for self mm. and it's not until you can get to that point that you can convey that to other people and that they will then start to treat you without the stigma because you will convey it the second you meet them 
Okay, yeah. They, they will detect this person does not have low respect or self-regard. They totally accept their circumstance. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where I would want everybody to get to. But it's a long road. It's tricky. Mm -hmm. And acceptance, acceptance of not looking perfect in a perfect world is really not easy, mm -hmm. particularly for young people. And that is ultimately where I think healthcare has to be understanding. If you cannot quote fix and perfect, then you've got to give strength to live with the imperfect. Mm. Yeah. Can I interject and ask you both, what advice might you give to a parent of a child with a visible defence um, who wants to foster resilience in their child? <laughs> After you, Matt. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've yeah, I thought I've so I had to do a talk around this more generally, not just cleft specific. Mm -hmm. So I've got a long list. So please stop me okay. if. Um, so the first one um, is creating a sense of optimism. Mm -hmm. So as a parent, that is, you know, around there's no limits to what the child can achieve, mm -hmm. in spite and despite of the difference. Mm -hmm. Also related to my resilience work, there's findings that optimism is a key aspect to resilience. One of the biggest findings in psychology arguably is that we can change the way we think and that implies that we can actually change our outlook in some situations mm. we can learn to be optimistic so parents can facilitate potentially optimism in their children the important caveat to that is that it needs to be realistic optimism because there's right. there's two types of optimism you've got realistic optimism and unrealistic optimism well unrealistic optimism is essentially just as bad as not having any optimism in that you know because if you just keep going on and thinking that everything's going to be okay and then it turns out not to be. Well, you've got to continually react to that. Mm -hmm. I'll pick out a few. One more and then I'll, I'll oh, have my go. Okay, okay, <laughs> cool. One more, right, I've, I've got lots. Um, I'd probably say, um, can I have two more, James? Am I allowed two? Um, so the other one is making the condition slash difference part of their story from the get-go. Right. I think that's important. Right. I've heard accounts yeah. of um, individuals with families who maybe try and hide this difference and mm -hmm. for, you know things like not having baby photos of the child right. you know if they're born mm -hmm. as in with cleft yeah. if, if it's a congenital difference and then finally I'd say it's about normalizing not only difference um, as James has, mm -hmm. has already touched yeah. upon very well I'd say it's about normalizing adversity and that actually life is full of ups and downs it's the same for everybody and if and if parents can do that in a realistic way I think and make the child feel like there is no limits to what they can achieve. Yeah. I think that can go a long way. Yeah, that's really nice. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Okay, James, uh, over to you. Okay. First thing I would say to parents is challenge your own beliefs about perfection and disfigurement. And it's not easy because we are all conditioned by how important it is to have this magic perfection. So I would really encourage them to debunk any thinking that they have that, you know, you have to have these looks before you can achieve. And there are lots of ways of helping parents to do that. Secondly, I would agree with Matt very strongly, make the condition part of their story. And I would call the condition the condition. I would call a cleft a cleft. And I would say... My child has a cleft lip and palate. I have burns. 
I have the scars of burns. Let's not get away from the fact that these are normal conditions. These are conditions. They're not anything to be ashamed about. And so I would steer away, in my humble opinion, from euphemism and difference. I want to say, please have the child learn that she has, he has a condition, and it's called a cleft lip and palate, and get them to be as expert as possible on it, so that they are in control of it for themselves, and that they can convey that to others whenever they are asked, right from a very young age, actually. And the third thing is find the thing or things that your child is good at, and go with talent. Go with talent. Multiply talent. Go with it. Expand it. Just make that possible. So you may have come across a, some lovely stories about Marcus recently. Marcus is a young guy with a cleft condition, and he's been on quite a lot of the Training Faces websites and stories recently. He happens to be a national trampolining champion. Well, I don't know anything about tramp trampolining, but he's bloody good at it. <laughs> and it gives him fantastic amount of self-esteem and confidence mm -hmm. in his own eyes and in the eyes of others. And I can't fault that. That is just great. You don't have to be a national champion, but anything that you're good at, encourage the child. Encourage and encourage and encourage. And thank you. What wonderful advice from both of you. Yeah. Um, I think people can take away a lot from that. Uh, so this has been a great thought-provoking discussion. Do you agree, mm, Nadia? Completely. Definitely. Completely. I've really enjoyed it. And actually, we're out of time. So I do have a final ah. question for you both, though, before we go. And it's about... So in CAR, we do cake um, on every Tuesday morning. So we'd like to know... I'll ask you first, James. What cake would you bring to our coffee morning? Um, given that I'm in Guernsey, I would say something from here. But since I'm not in Bristol... Uh, I think I would go for a carrot cake with a really lovely white and juicy icing on the top of it. Oh, that, that sounds good. We don't get many carrot cakes. No, do we? we don't actually. That's, that's that would a be great. One. Yeah, that'd be very welcome. Very yeah. Um, and thanks, James. So, Matt, um, I actually don't think I've ever seen you do a cake before, just to mention. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to that was going to be my answer. Just to yeah. highlight that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, if it was actually to do a cake, finally, um, what cake would you bring? <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to answer this question saying um, I'm not much of a baker, hence probably why you've never seen me bake um, and bring any in. If I was to, I'd buy it, and it would be like a lemon drizzle with lots of icing on the top. Um, something like that. We got similar icing fans here. I think that they would both go down well. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, we'd like to see it one day. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> For the PhD's done. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Great. Well, well, thank you both ever so much. Okay, Cheers. James, Bye. Bye. That was great, and a few announcements before we end. You can still register for our Appearance Matters 8 conference, but hurry, spaces are running out. Yes, and you'll be able to hear James's keynote, as well as Professor Diane Newmark-Steiner's keynote on eating disorder prevention, and Professor Rebecca Poole's keynote on weight stigma. And if you're an early career researcher like us, and coming to Appearance Matters 8, you can register for the mentorship breakfast, and you definitely won't want to miss out on that. And remember, if you come, you can get a selfie with us. Woo. We're also getting very good at boomerang. <laughs> About three years later than everyone else. But yeah, this is our attempt at being resilient and adapting to our changing environment, <laughs> I guess. <laughs>
<laughs> I like what you did there, Jade. Um, I think we should end with that. Uh, big thanks to James and to Matt for speaking with us and for that really stimulating discussion. Yeah, and make sure you subscribe so you'll be the first to hear our episode next month on acne and body image.